What's what's all this? What's all this racket, David? What are you doing? What? What do you mean? What's all this noise? What? Why are you? Why do you sound so much? Just turn off the equipment. Whatever yeah, the I'm hell's going on. Yeah, but Dave, we're recording the podcast. Audio quality's important. What do you? What do you do? Can you? Can, okay, can you turn them off for just like a second too? So I can barely hear you over. Okay, let's just take that. Take that. Okay, fine. I'll 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 turn the machines off. Take my welder's mask off. And we can we can figure this out. We can we can find the issue here. Okay, what was that? What were you doing? I was just I'm building the world. We we're doing the episode. I'm building the world. Oh my so god! So I had to get no, David. Giant David. Build what? I'm can, David. We were doing an episode on world building, like in terms of like story structure and like so, art departments wait, wait and like second. how that works in film. It's a discussion. Not an actual DIY project. I have a 50-foot full-size world out there, though. Why? What, that's what part of me saying, hey, I spoke to a special guest star about world building in film. You took that as, gotta build it. Yeah. What? Th- <laughs> isn't that what we're doing? No, uh, you... Fuck. You silly. And another thing, all those, that all sounded like really generic stock foot, it's like sound effects. <laughs> Foley work of construction. It doesn't sound like it was convincing at all. I think sure. this is an audio bit. <laughs> I think you pulled a goof on me. It's definitely not a visual bit. <laughs> <laughs> because, as you will learn in podcasts, not they don't have visuals except some of them also do have videos ah gotta go to the intro song recorded from deep within the great lakes of the internet live two men buried under bad movies and popcorn try their best to survive how long could that possibly last find out as you join ethan and david in this episode of feature cast Well, that was something. Yeah, it was something. That was a bit. Uh, if you couldn't tell from that, we're talking world building today, and we have a special guest star, and we'll introduce them in just a second. Uh, what the heck are you listening to right now? David, what is this? This is FeatureCast. This huh? is FeatureCast. This is... Who is that? Can you hear me? This is, this is David. I am one of the co-hosts, and with me is my other co-host, Ethan. Oh. Wait, no, are no, you no, no. saying Sorry, this... the other guy. The other guy. No, no, no. Oh. <clears throat> I can go. Yep. Speak up. Yeah, no, no, no. It's okay. This is a duo now. Hello, it's trio. me, the oh, old fuck. man that was introduced in a previous episode as a silent, previously silent, but now very vocal and recurring <laughs> guest. <laughs> this guy's got to stop. <laughs> he just keeps popping up. All right. Uh, let's, <laughs> we're so good but at this. This is Feature Cast. This is a monthly entertainment podcast but primarily movies we talk about flicks yeah it's a comedy and movie podcast not a comedy movie podcast even though we do make our goofs and gaffes sometimes we talk about serious films and can get down to the nitty-gritty on things really dive toes and head first well i actually i don't know how you can do toes and head first that's a funny dive you're making into the water (laughs) 
kind of like a you. Um, and talking <laughs> about you, you sat down today, or not today, but the other day with Guy. Oh, smooth like butter, David. That Dude, transition was smooth <laughs> like butter. That's a catchphrase that David coined. Smooth S- like butter. No, I never even said Pretty that. Pretty sure you say that all the time, actually. I was trying to get back onto track of what this episode's going to be. <laughs> and you sat down with Guy and yes. talked about a little bit of, a little bit about world building. Yes, I sat down with our good friend Guy from How to Be a Great GM. Uh, they are, uh, I would say, bona fide expert uh, when it comes to world and, building. Yeah, they totally. they've made a whole career out of storytelling and world building and explaining that to people, whether it's on their YouTube channel, in their live uh, Twitch and YouTube streams, at talks and conventions, uh, really diving deep in with actual books on how to do that. Uh, they're a great, great expert on things. And I was also there in the conversation. So really all of us had a part <laughs> to share wisdom to spread. Uh, no, it was yes. a great conversation. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But we got a couple of things we got to get to first, David. This and show has a structure. Is- Yes, like, the first one is like the structure, like the, like the structure you made outside of your house in the beginning. <laughs> Remember in the beginning of the episode that bit we it's did. A callback. That's a callback. Um, hey, in comedy, there, in we comedy, we call that a callback. Jesus Christ! <laughs> uh, it's past midnight when we're recording this. It's it's wild. We're doing the most to get this out in August. And we this really is what are. you get. You get goofy boys. Uh, first impressions. That's first impressions. What's what that? are they? They are exactly what they sound like. Our first impressions on either movies, television shows, books, comics, articles, anything. Anything you want to talk about as long as it's your first time experiencing said thing. Yes. And each month we talk about four of our top first impressions and then we package up the other first impressions that we had and save them for our patreon only members uh most months it's only three but in the summer since there's so many dang old movies we bumped it up to four that doesn't matter who cares (laughs) it's always the summer in my heart so let's kick it off with our first first impression ethan take it away oh yes hello it's me i recently saw the latest Tarantino film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Ooh, Ooh. his ninth. Yes, film. according to his math. <laughs> Somehow, yes. yes. Uh, so the basic plot of this, it follows, are two main stars in the movie, Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. Uh, it takes place in the 1960s in Hollywood, hence the title Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, it follows the, the, the first character is Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, he is a uh, aging actor. Yep. Um, he's kind of come to the realization that maybe he's a washed-up has-been. He's not getting as many, you know, lead hero cowboy roles as he used to. He's getting passed up for for big movies like The Great Escape, for example. Um, and <sighs> the some of the outcomes of that is it's also caused a hardship on his long-term working partner, uh, Brad Pitt's character, who, who is plays his, his stunt double. His stunt double, that's correct. Yeah. Uh, and because he's not getting as much action work, not getting as much work in general, that leaves Brad Pitt to kind of meander about Hollywood, um, whether that's on farms on the outskirt of town or just driving around the Hollywood Hills. 
a lot of it is just him just kind of hanging around. Uh, it also weaves together some other characters. You have Margot Robbie playing Sharon Tate. Um, if you know anything about the history of Sharon Tate or Hollywood in the 60s, you know it's an interesting time to focus yeah. on her. Um, and this movie knows that that's an interest. <laughs> I think it's really um. <laughs> fascinating how, like, if you would have watched the trailers and not known who Sharon Tate is, you may not know what this movie is going to be. Yes. You know? Because, like, but there are some people not... who I knew who saw, who, who saw the trailers and had no idea what it would what it was going to cover off on. Right. And it's not entirely about the Sharon Tate story. And I think no. that's to a good effect. Um, this film, like many uh, late Tarantino films could use a little bit of work on editing. I don't necessarily think that uh, means the piece as a whole is bad. Um, well, but after his long-term editor died yeah. uh, a few movies back, you've definitely seen a, a shift in how they're, they're really edited. Um, yep. Lots of fat that can be trimmed. I don't necessarily think that it's always a bad thing to have some extra fat, especially on something that is following a meandering stunt double that hasn't had real stunt work in a while because you can kind of really flesh out a character. Um, it's, it's okay to have a bit of fluff there. Uh, I mean, I think in like Tarantino's later years, he's really just said, you know what? This is going to be a three-hour movie. I'm going to sit this camera right here, and you're just going to watch these characters talk for absolutely. 10 minutes. Absolutely, and that's not always a bad time. Um, no, it's awesome. I my, it. my general thoughts on this movie, I really liked it. I am a, a pretty big fan of late Tarantino. I really liked Hateful Eight. Um, Django had some parts that I wasn't a huge fan of, but overall was yeah. still enjoyable. And Glorious Bastards was also fantastic. It's the best. Um, it's just the best. Let's be honest about it. So some things I really liked about this movie. I think I will like it more on a second viewing. You've watched this multiple times, is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yes, because I just absolutely love hanging out with these characters. Yes. Uh, Brad Pitt especially is fantastic in this. Uh, not to say that Leonardo DiCaprio is not, you know, on top of his game and really giving his all. He is, but Brad Pitt hasn't really had a role that he's really gotten to sink his teeth in for a little bit. Um, at least, at least not in the past few years. Whereas DiCaprio has had, especially within the last five, six years, a lot of yeah. really, really great roles. Um, so it was nice to see Brad Pitt kind of do something fantastic, and and it really plays to where he is at right now as an actor as well. This isn't something that a young Brad Pitt would be capable of doing, um, and I think this kind of plays well into like having older stars that have been around the block for a little bit and and really know what they're doing and i think both of them kind of fit their roles really well um like even when you know that oh hey this is the actor that's playing them um some of the stuff with the manson side of things and how it kind of weaves in and out at certain points throughout the movie um I, i some worked way better than others um, I think that the the group as a whole had a kind of lingering effect, but they I think they played it smart. There really wasn't much of there's there's not much of Charlie Manson himself, and I think that's a good choice. It really lets some of the other things shine in it. I, I really liked it. It definitely has some some fluff. It could have been cut out. Uh, yeah. So that's my basic thoughts. I thought it was really good. I really enjoyed it, but I'm also a huge fan of late Tarantino. So if you're not as big of a fan of that, you might not like it as much. 
I think it'll be hit or miss for some people. I know some people will really love it, and I can also see some people just thinking it's, like, awful. But I loved it. I had a great time So, with it. I also saw it. I loved it as well. Uh, I think it's my top five right now. And I, I'm kind of leaning back and forth between the exclusion of, like, more Manson or more family stuff, or even more, what like, potential for consequences in this world. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like it's kind of lacking, because, like, if you look at, like, what I think is peak Tarantino in Glorious Bastards, like, you have those those scenes of tension where it's, like, slowly building to what you know is going to be this explosion of something. Right. And I feel like in this movie, there's a certain scene that alludes to that same sense, and then it just kind of cops out to be a joke. Um... I can kind of get what you're saying. I, I, I think that would be more of, like, a spoiler discussion to really delve into all of what yeah. that means for it. Um, however, David, you've seen this movie more than more than once, right? Yep. Okay. What's our rule of first impressions? You can only see it the one time. Move on to the next movie, bucko. So, for my first impression, uh, my first first impression, at least, first, first. Is, <laughs> is, I guess, the live action, air quotes, Lion King I would say um, hyper real is a better way to... Okay, I like that. I've Thanks. been trying to figure out how to say what this is, because it's not live action. It's technically animated, but hyper realistic is hyper accurate. Um, <laughs> and this is just a weird movie, directed by John Favreau, with a huge list of stars. Chu Telegia 4, John Oliver, James Earl Jones, uh, you know, Beyonce, Donnie Glover, Donald Glover... Uh, Seth Rogen, Billy whole bunch Eichner, of people. Eric Andre. You went in a, such a strange order with that cast list, but it's it's sorry. I have a little bit of a whiplash from that, uh, <laughs> as I'm sure you probably had after watching the movie. Keegan Michael Key. Yeah, um, there's one. <laughs> we got him in just under the radar. It's just like I was pretty excited for this movie. I thought this was gonna be. Really good because I like the original Lion King is probably probably my favorite Disney animated movie. Um, and this is just it's this is a weird creature like it's okay. it's almost a shot for shot remake of the animated movie with almost zero of the emotional feel as the first one. Oof, because I just think there's there's something you lose with this hyper realistic style where you cannot really get any emoting. From a feline's eyes, or from a bird, or a water buffalo, you know? There's also, like, just, like, really weird, like, small cha- Okay, so, like, everyone's seen The Lion King. I can spoil The Lion King, right? Well, what if I haven't seen Hamlet? You've seen- <laughs> There is the scene, though, right, where Scar, uh, throws Mufasa off the cliff, right? It's, like, the big scene. Yeah. Right? In this movie, for some reason- like, in the animated movie, Scar, like, grabs into his paws as he's trying to climb up the mountainside and, like, throws him back, right? In this movie, they thought it was a good idea to have Scar punch him in the face. What? <laughs> and I'm, like, not even joking. It's so weird that, like, this 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 entire scene where I'm, like, supposed to be, like, invested. Because, like, this is the moment, like, in the animated movie where it just fucking kills me and breaks me down. 
Like, this is, like, the equivalent to, like, the up moment where I can just put this on and, like, it kills me. So, and, what, what's And weird, then Scar punches I, him. Again, I haven't seen the, the movie, face. but I did see this one scene. And the thing that was really weird is he got up on his hind legs and he put his fists up in, like, a like a Bronson kind of way. He said, come here, sucker. Are you ready for a knockout? You want to dance? Put on your tap shoes, buddy. And then he just bopped him right in the nose. It's just so... It's, like, weird <laughs> things like that. It's also, like, can you feel the love tonight is sung during the day. <laughs> like did anyone who's doing the animation for this listen to the song because like that's not how that works i think there's one improvement and that's the hyenas okay i think the, the hyenas are actually an improvement because in in the anime movie they're just super annoying i mean you know if you kind of was it whoopi goldberg or wanda sykes yeah, in the original it was whoopi, whoopi goldberg, goldberg. Okay. um it's in this been a one while, you got sorry. this one you got Keegan Michael Keel and Andre um, Eric his, Andre was yeah Eric Andre uh, and they just do a little bit better okay. and I feel like I feel like they're actually more of a threat where in the first one I'm just like they're just a joke like they're not a real threat to anybody okay so they got them to be a little bit scarier all right a little bit yeah so, so uh, do you think do you think this movie obviously you think that it's a lesser version do you think it hurts the original no i'm not one who subscribes to like that thought that like if you remake something it hurts the first one like no it just like it gives you a chance to possibly get something better okay you know and take a different look at it unfortunately this one didn't even take a different look at the story it was like let's just do this in like the hyper realistic style which is interesting you know it's it like it's crazy how good the cgi is here it's insane how realistic it is. Um, but it's just a waste of time. I would never want anyone to watch this over the original. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, let's let's move into one of the next ones for mine. We'll try and kind of get through these a little bit quicker. I know you guys are excited for our interview with Guy. We'll get to it. Don't worry. Hold your horses. But first, gather round, ye mortals. And praise... The Demon Overlord. That's right. I recently saw Hail Satan. Uh, this is the uh, the recent documentary about uh, the Satanic Temple. Um, mm-hmm. That's Hail Satan with a question mark because, <laughs> you know, you got to keep them guessing. Um, this video just got demonetized. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's 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 a really fascinating documentary. Um, if if you're not familiar with the Satanic Temple or you know a little bit about it, I think either is a good stepping stone into it. I knew a little bit about, but uh, nowhere near the amount of information I knew about them after mm-hmm. it. So I, I knew that they had kind of like so, some big ones that they got famous for would be like proposing to put up a um, statue of Baphomet um, with two children looking up gracefully at at this uh goat-headed demon they wanted to put that statue uh on the the capitol grounds uh because there was a proposed 10 commandments so a lot of (laughs) a lot of their core philosophy is like the the biggest thing is they want to make sure that we don't become a theocracy um and that religious pluralism is respected in america and i think that's a really noble cause and I think mm-hmm. that no matter where you land on the belief spectrum, you can kind of buy into that of like, yes, uh, a land that is that was created with 
literally in its constitution, separation of church and state, is is good to uphold that and keep that that going before uh, anything gets kind of crazy with it. Um, there's a lot of really hot takes in this from a lot of the people interviewed. I don't think that the documentary necessarily uh, agrees with all of them or disagrees. I think it does take a decently unbiased look at it. Um, you even have people that are interviewed that other people say, we don't really associate with this person after what they did. We don't agree with what they did. But the other person yeah. still interviewed and given a, a voice to, to speak on things. Um, they didn't really interview a lot of people that were on the opposite side of the Satanic Temple, but I don't think that was necessarily the point of it. Um, you still got like the news coverage of everything and got to see that, although I think that might have been a little bit biased of just to show, like to iterate how dramatized everything was uh, mm-hmm. at the time. And I think I think it did a really good job at that. I really enjoyed it. Um, so did I. So I also saw this yeah. one. This has been on my radar since I heard about it, because it just sounded so fascinating. Um, it was better and, than I expected, honestly. I, I I was really... I went in like knowing that it was an interesting enough su- subject, but I think they did an excellent job balancing everything. Hey, what's your what's your next uh, first impressioni? My next one is the directorial debut from Paul Dano, Ooh. also written by him, Ooh. and that's Wildlife, Ooh. starring... Uh, <laughs> Carrie Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal Ed, and Ed Oxenborough from The Visit. All fantastic. Maybe the last one hasn't been in as many you good know, ones. I, I don't know if he's done enough. I he's mean, a really he did have list. that no good, very bad, terrible, horrible, rotten, uh, fuck all day. Is he in that? I didn't even know that was he's him. The main, he's the main kid. The titular really? Alexander. Wow. Um, and this movie follows a family as they... Fall apart, really. Okay. Uh, the uh, Jake Joan Hall loses his job at a local golf course, and really from there it just all spirals downhill, and it is so painful to watch everything because it's a slow, it's a slow movie that just follows these three characters. Like one character kind of comes into the movie and you follow that a little bit, but it's really just these three, and even more so just. I don't want to say anything, but it's just the three. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just this painful portrait of what a failing family looks like. It's just a really sad look. Like, this is, like, one of the hardest movies that, like, isn't, like, doing anything, you know? Like, but it's just, like, all the emotions you would, f- like, you feel in these situations. Like, there are certain things that are happening where you're just, like, get out of the situation, like, just like stop everything that's happening and just leave. And there are certain there's certain moments in this movie where I'm like, is it gonna go this way? Because like it could go like like Requiem for a Dream Dark, mm-hmm. you know? And it never does. It really stays on that like realistic path. Okay. And it it's just it's impressive. Uh the shot choices in here are gorgeous. Like there's one that follows just like an overhead of a car trap like driving. For like probably like two minutes, huh. and it's just this like the the landscape shots are so so perfect. It's I think streaming on something right now. That's so vague, mm-hmm. but so helpful. Uh, well, <laughs> I think it might be on Hulu or right. Amazon. We'll find it. It's One somewhere. of those two. Something <laughs> like that. <laughs> um, 
I do have something that is that is streaming, and I know exactly where it's streaming. It's streaming on Netflix. Uh, Whoa, this is this is a comedy short. Uh, I think oh. it's around thirty minutes or so. This is Frankenstein's monsters monster Frankenstein, which is a fantastic title. First of all, that's so good. <laughs> good. Uh, I love titles like that that are just over the top, but like get get exactly what needs. To get across, because just from that title, you know the exact, like, the general plot. You also know the tone, I think. (laughs) Um, It follows uh, David Harper, who is playing a a version of himself in this. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of uh, historical fiction. Is he in full makeup? Uh, I mean, he's just in normal clothes. Like he's not. He's playing in his himself. Hellboy. A, a version he's not of himself. Hellboy. No, he's, he's not Hellboy. in his Hellboy. A version of himself. Hellboy. <laughs> um, and he's he's kind of going through the the uh, made up history of of his father, who was an actor, and a lot of the notes it hits are, in terms of the history that's played out, it, it kind of goes into a satire approach on a Orson Welles esque figure. Um, which is fascinating. Um, it's. Mm-hmm. I think the comedy is super sharp. It's definitely like it's short and sweet. So even if you don't fully buy into everything, you don't have to commit very long. Um, it, it plays into some of the tro- so by having they could have just done the satire of like the stage production and some of the behind the scenes historical things, mm-hmm. but because they have it being a documentary following that. It gets into kind of the double-edged comedy thing where you have like the base, the 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 punchline, and then an analysis of the punchline that is also a punchline in a very Garth Marenghi's Dark Place sense, where they have like the main story and then a separate story dissecting that story, and it that adds to it. So it, it's got layers to it, but it doesn't sound as complicated. <laughs> I really liked it. I thought it was super funny. Um, David Harper's fantastic. I watched Amazon's latest original series, The Boys. The Boys! Uh, based on Garth Ennis's comic series by the same name. Great name drop. Uh, and, yeah. And this stars Carl Urban's, like, the main name, but it also stars, like, Jack Quaid, Aaron Moriarty, and, you know, a few other actors who aren't really to that, like, Carl Urban level, you know? Mm-hmm. And this, uh, this is such a fun fucking show it's it's a very hard nc-17 like extremely hard wow not even just r nc-17 yeah okay um and this takes place in imagine like a imagine like a corrupt dark uh drug filled murder filled incredibles (laughs) okay okay Um, (laughs) very bloody so it, it's somewhere um, between Kick-Ass and Watchmen? Uh, it's so much further than Kick-Ass. Right. That's oh, why yeah. I went. Was Watchmen your dark? Yeah. Watchmen is, I mean, it, that's actually a really good combination, yeah. Um, Thanks. <laughs> I was going to say it would be more like... Amazon, let me do season two. <laughs> if you could mix, like, The Incredibles with American Psycho. Whoa, wild. Okay. Something like that. So what's what's the um, basic premise, then? The basic premise is that there is the Seven, which is essentially just the Justice League, has been privatized and 
uh, and sold as a business. And superheroes are basically being loaned out or more so leased out to cities to protect them, right? Which then increases, you know, uh, city city outlook and 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 you know income, but they all cost a big buck. And with this, obviously, when you get this much corporate structure and money, there's there's going to be some darkness going on inside of this company, right? Mm-hmm. And there is. And that's really what the entire show is about, is like finding out what's going on with the Seven. And there is a group of boys, uh, led by <laughs> Carl Urban. The titular boys. <laughs> uh, b- pl- who's playing Billy Butcher and Huey, who uh, are basically trying to track down and kill the Seven. And that's it. Okay. Uh it's really fun. The first few episodes, I think, I think it starts off stronger and starts to teeter off, but it still stays super strong throughout. And when it ends, like the like the season finale, got me so hyped for season two, which has already been signed on. So there's no like concerns about jumping into a show that might get canceled. Um, let's let's go on a sadder trip. We're going to know. mainland China. Oh. We're going to shed a couple of <laughs> tears. Uh, I recently saw the fantastic film, The Farewell. Um, oh. This is Lulu Wang's uh, directorial debut. Um, oh. She also wrote this film, and it's mainly based on her life. Um, her lie. Yes, well, a lie. Um, but not <laughs> not to say that the story is falsified or anything. But uh, so, yeah. so the basic premise is um, we meet our... Uh, young protagonist Billy, played by Aquafina, in a role that is unlike anything she's ever done, yeah. and I think all the stronger because of it. Um, mm-hmm. She learns that her parents are flying back for a supposed wedding. Um, they're flying back to to China to be with the family for a supposed wedding that seems a little kind of rushed and out of the blue. She then learns that it's actually a cover up. Um, the, the wedding is just a kind of quickly put together excuse um, to to get the whole family back to see um, their their grandmother Nene um, and the reason they need to visit her is because she has cancer and is most likely going to die but she doesn't know that um, we, we learned through through the film that uh, in in China, uh, there, there's a one line specifically uh, given by um, Diana Lin, who plays uh, um, Billy's mom. <laughs> there's a saying in China, when you get cancer, you die. <laughs> uh, but then it goes on to explain, but it's not the cancer that kills you. It's it's the fear. It's, it's, um, yeah. And so the whole thing is that they think it's better just to let, like, give them a, a happy end. And when it's actually time to turn that final page then you can say your farewell. Um, Billy, being kind of raised in America, uh, doesn't quite get this and kind of argues for the opposite. Um, oh, yeah, because, I mean, it's a big question. But like, she finds her way to, to China, and throughout this, she doesn't, she doesn't go against her, her the rest of her family's wishes. She definitely will argue with them and bring up the case as to like why you would want to tell someone. And it kind of teeters on that balance. Um, it is 
so well acted. Um, especially Aquafina's performance in this is complete. Like it's a complete game changer. Um, it it's so it's so real and like. I don't know. It it it, com- it didn't feel like I was just watching Aquafina do something. Where in most of her other roles, that's what it kind of feels like. Whether that's Ocean's Eight or Crazy Rich Asians, I look at it. and I'm like, oh, yeah. this is a fun Aquafina character. Whereas this is a fully fledged character that I I wouldn't be surprised if there was some Oscar campaigns for not oh, only Aquafina but also Lulu Wang. Um, mm-hmm. Original screenplay. Exactly. Um, yeah. Ooh, that's a that's a good good call. <laughs> we're, we're ahead of the game on that one. this movie is so good um i I gave it it the full five stars you chopped off half a star but it really you hand out five stars easily i don't know i only got two so far this year two this year i i'm almost i'm getting towards a hundred films i got zero this year that's wild um Um. (laughs) but it it really i thought this was a a fantastic i i don't really see a lot of the flaws there are a couple of moments that have a bit of cringe in them but it's intentional um yeah there's so many moments that you think oh my god it's about to happen now and uh, not all of them do and it's i don't know it's it's really good uh the ending is is potent and like oh it's it's so well crafted um yeah i the ending I has I me like shut up about this movie it's so good but now i'll shut the up the end <laughs> well the i just want to say like the ending had me just like on the verge of just like like gross crying oh yeah for, like, like the, the entire like the drive Davis home fences. yeah like i was like right on the edge of that for like my entire drive home for like the next hour i woke up the next day just like fucking this move like it just like ah i don't know i love this movie it's really good and i i don't think everyone's gonna have the same connection to this movie i think a lot of people will but i think there's like it's getting going a huge to be a, buzz so far oh i know people are loving i i, I think there's like certain life events that need to take place in somebody's life to have the same connection to this movie as yeah. as you should have to it you know i loved it it's my number one of the year i that's the main reason I didn't put this in my first impressions because, like, I wanted to save off on talking about it until. Oh, we will definitely be talking about this yeah. at the oh, yeah. end of the year wrap up of the best movie. There is not a doubt in my mind we will still be talking about this movie because it really, like, it's every now and then you get those films that, like, it's getting good press and all that stuff, and, like, you're excited to see it, and then you watch it, and it's like, this is, like, I hate saying everything. the, yeah. the phrase, like, this is an important movie. But I mean that in a very personal sense. Like, this this almost will, if you've experienced anything related to, a, like, a close death in your family or the, the thought of that happening, you know? Like, if you've had, like, cancer scares or anything like that in your history, it, it will hit pretty hard. Um, and yeah. even if you don't have all those things, it can still hit pretty hard because it's performed so well. And the cinematography is also fantastic. The writing is so sharp. It, it, honestly, it, there's not a single like aspect of this movie that I think falls flat. I think all like it's running on full cylinders and it's amazing. Yeah, no, it's it's so good. It's so fucking good. So I was gonna transition because you had said mind, and I said speaking. I was gonna say speaking of minds. My next one, my next first impression is season two of Mindhunter. Mm. But then we kept talking for too long, and I lost my transition. So it's okay. I forgive you, David. I had to share it with everyone still, though. Just this it was one there. time. 
I forgive you, David. Oh, thank you. Um, season two of Mindhunter. So this is David Fincher's Netflix original series that he directs a few of the episodes and writes a few of the episodes. But he's still he's still like the showrunner. If 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 yeah, I'm right. yes, and you can feel that. Like all of Fincher's Fincherness <laughs> is in this show. Like, I think like if you watch like the opening credits or like the opening sequence of Mindhunter season two. I don't know if it's the same as season one, I don't remember. Uh, but you can 100% tell that this is the person who created Fight Club. You know? Like, <laughs> and it'll make so much sense when you see it, because I know you haven't watched it yet, but, like, Not season it's two. just so in your face. You you saw season one? Uh, I, I think I have a few episodes left. I got super busy right after it came out, so, like, I was super into the show, and then I got busy, and then I just didn't pick it up again yet. But I, I, I'm, I, I will... Eventually, God, I have so much, so many movies that just kind of get left on the shelf of like, I'll get back around to it. So, I, okay, so season one follows two FBI agents as they travel around to different inmates, serial killers, and interview them. And I really feel like season one is kind of more like uh, big picture. Lo- correction, sequence killers. Yes, okay, so you're still in season one, obviously. <laughs> That is such a season one joke. <laughs> um, uh, and I really feel like season one is like bigger picture, like what like like what this show is even like thinking about doing, you know? Because season one is very much so. Let's sit down and interview like a bunch of people, mm-hmm. and season two really catches its footing and like pushes you into like it still has a few of those interviews, but it really pushes you in one direction through the entire season, which. I liked. Okay. Because I like having that through line between episodes where I'm like, okay, this is what we're doing for this season. Uh, and I think season two, like, I love season one. I think season two, I like even more. And I'm even more excited for season three. That's awesome. Like, I think this show, for what it's doing, you know, for this, you know, FBI investigative, you know, serial killer show, it's the pinnacle of what it can be. Uh, I mentioned before. Uh, something specific to Mindhunter that, like, I have so many things that I kind of put on a shelf and say, hey, I will come back to you. Well, we made a certain part of our first impressions all about returning and getting those things that we put on a shelf so long ago that we were putting off, and that's called our backlog. Um, that can be contemporary movies, that can be classic movies, just movies we've been meaning to get around to. Um, I watched a somewhat recent Criterion Collection edition. So, so this is what number is the, it? Uh, 1959. <laughs> I don't know this fine number. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just fucking with it's fine. A thousand. Okay. Who would have thought? Um, <laughs> it's Spinosaurus. Spinosaurus. <laughs> Look out, T-Rex. Run away. <laughs> uh, we Dra- get so off topic. Jurassic it's Park so three wild. throwback. <laughs> it's so wild. Um, what a classic. I recently watched <laughs> the 1959 film good morning so here's the basic premise uh it's a slice of life film that follows this kind of small community in a japanese village specifically one family is its main focus but a lot of the other like neighbors um and the neighbor's kids and the like english tutors they all kind of figure their way into this puzzle as a whole um it really feels like a full like vibrant living community um they do a fantastic job at that but the main focus is on two young boys uh, who kind of set themselves up with a mission to get a television set for their household. Um, oh, that's nice. 
their parents don't like the idea. Um, oh, they are no. completely against it. So the the boys do one of the few things they have in their power to do as as two small Japanese boys uh, in like control of their parents' finance, which they have none, uh, is to go on a vow of silence to everyone. So not just at home, but also at Ooh. school. Uh, when they're walking to school to police officers, um, just they, they keep... But they, there are a couple of caveats to that rule um, that they decide. Um, so no talking, but farting is okay. Um, which is a language in itself. Um, it is, it's so heartwarming, and it's so pure. Oh, I, I adored this movie, like, way more than I thought I would. Um, it easily could end up in my top films of all time. It's that good. Um, every single shot is gorgeous. Honestly, what I really want to do that this is now a new mission in my life is to watch this on like a original print, you know, to actually see it projected on film because even, even without the actual texture in front of me, there's so much life in every single frame that I think this would be like just a fantastic watch on actual film um it's it's so good David I can't get over how good it is uh again that's Good Morning the 1959 Japanese film Good Morning uh make sure if you're looking it up add in that 1959 because otherwise, it'll, you'll just get a bunch of JPEGs of generic, you know, greetings. <laughs> That's really funny, actually. Um, <clears throat> well, I'm happy that you were overly pleased with your uh, backlog. I was delighted. It was viewing. so good. I wish I liked my movie as much, because mine has probably been on my backlog longer than I can remember any other movie being on my backlog. Because I thought this was the perfect combination of movies. Paul Thomas Anderson's directorial debut, Heart Eight, movie about gambling. I was like, this is going to be the fucking coolest movie ever. Is this two PTA movies in a row for your backlog? It is. I did The Master, and then this ended up on streaming on Amazon Prime, and I was like, holy shit, it's a sign. I have to watch it. This is starring uh, John C. Riley, Gwyneth Paltrow, Philip Baker Hall, and Samuel Jackson. Interesting and Basically cast, what yeah. it is... It, is Philip Baker Hall runs into John C. Riley and kind of takes him under his wing as like the older aging gambler to teach him his trick of the trade, right? And there's like a really weird time jump after like their first time out. And then it's just like, I'm succeeding. Woo! And it's just like the weirdest time jump. I don't know. Um, and then John C. Riley falls in love with. A prostitute and you know then shit ensues and you know they have to deal with stuff and this entire movie just felt so underwhelming and i feel like nothing happened in the 101 minute runtime oof and it's not like it's bad like the scenes aren't bad like there's some there's some stuff that really works but from paul thomas anderson the whole I'm is, just expecting... is less than the sum of its part kind of thing yeah, and I'm just expecting a lot from Paul Thomas Anderson. Like he's, I think one of the, like the most skilled directors out there right now. Mm. And this was just a. It wasn't anything like what I thought it was going to be. You know, and 
than what it was was just very underwhelming. I wish I liked it more. So that that wraps up our first impressions and backlog. Um, so that normally we go and we start talking about our, our normal uh, topic for the episode, except we're not going to talk about it. I will. I'll talk a little bit. Yeah. I'm not there for no. it. No. So this was just Sorry. me and our, our friend Guy from How to Be a Great GM. Um, we do a little bit of an introduction into the core premise. Um, basically, we're going to talk all that there is to know about world building, the good, the bad, the excellent, uh, the okay, the exceptions. Um, and and, and it's, it's a nice little nuanced look, you know, how some movies can have great world building and still be bad movies or vice versa. A fantastic movie can have awful world building and we get into a lot of the specifics there uh do i need to run it up any more than that or they do they get the gist no no that's good i like that okay well we'll see in a little bit stay tuned for after the the discussion we'll we have a little bit more show after that um david what are we gonna be talking about in at the at the end of the episode that they can look forward to uh if they stick around after uh after our discussion we're going to be doing a little bit of a, a pitch and fixin'. Fix, fix a movie and also pitch a possibly a new idea? Yeah. I'm going to be fixing a pile of trash movie <laughs> that just got dropped on Netflix. Oh, interesting. And he's going to be pitching us a little original film of his own. Without further ado, here is uh, our discussion on world building. Hey, everybody. It's the main part of the episode now. Congratulations. You made it here. I'm here talking to my good friend Guy about world building in film. So, Guy, why are we talking about this dang old world building and what makes you so qualified to talk about it? Uh, well, uh, firstly, thank you for having me on your show. I Absolutely. appreciate it. Uh, so, what makes me qualified for talking about world building? I've been doing it for 20 years, which is almost as long as you've been alive. So, <laughs> I don't know. Does that give me authority? I believe so. Yes. <laughs> Score five points. All right. Awesome. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I guess let's just jump right into it. Um, so we're going to be talking about all different types of world building, the good, the bad, the decent, and some kind of gray areas in the middle as well. I think let's jump into some of the worst world building. Um, we kind of came up with a loose list of different movies that kind of fall into each category. Um, but first, when we talk about world building, what are some of the things that we're kind of looking for? It's a very, very good question. And I think the very first thing that you have to look at when talking world building is what is the purpose of the world that you are building? Is it in specifically the case of film? Is it a backdrop? Is it something that's going to determine how the story unfolds? How much info does the audience need to know about the background, uh, about the world that they're in? So how vital is the world space to the story that you are trying to tell in your film. So if it has no relevance, then your world building doesn't need to be very good. But if there's kind of cliffhanger stuff, if there's info that's very specific to the world, it's gonna change how things would normally work. If you've got different physics, if you've got magic, if you've got that kind of stuff, you then need to go in and do some really good world building that is, and the critical thing for me is consistency. It has to be consistent. If it isn't consistent, you haven't world built, you've just jumbled together a whole bunch of tropes and cool ideas and hope that nobody would notice 
the giant issues that they cause. Absolutely. You got to make sure everything works together for it. Uh, so a couple of movies that didn't do that. Now, here's the thing about world building. It doesn't necessarily make the movie bad as a whole. You can still enjoy a movie even if it has bad world building. But we're going to specifically talk about some of the things story-wise um, that kind of damage that. There are some movies, even in this first category, that do overcome that. Uh, but I think let's just jump right in. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. <laughs> That's some bad world building. It's hard. It's hard. <laughs> it's really hard. It's worse than hard. It's totally bad. And I think, you know, the reason why it's so bad is that it started out so well. Mm -hmm. And then it was rebooted. I mean, it's already on a shaky premise, right? I mean, when Jurassic Park was originally written by Crichton uh, back in the early 90s, the whole idea of extracting DNA from fossilized creatures was super revolutionary and... Uh, in the in the 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 collective space of humanity, we were busy mapping DNA at that point in science, and no one really knew where it was going. It was cutting edge, and so everyone went, "Okay, cool. It kind of makes sense. You can get DNA from dinosaurs, and then you can splice them together with frog DNA because amphibians work well with stuff." But I mean, we're doing that now, where we're doing mice embryos and human embryos and all that kind of st that kind of thing. Of course, this isn't new. Um, Vern was writing about it with his Dr. Morio, so or Moreau, however you want to pronounce that that whole sort of island of the the mixed creatures. Yeah. So it's not a new world space necessarily from a world building perspective. But as the series continued, they got worse and worse and worse in terms of giving dinosaurs the ability to turn invisible, and I mean, it it just got it got crazy. Well, and even with the, the new series with the first Jurassic World, they try every now and then they throw something in to try and kind of explain it where they're talking about like, well, no, it's we're making it look like how people want it to look. Right. Saying that like that otherwise it'd have a whole bunch of feathers kind of adding on new information that science has given us in terms of what dinosaurs would have actually looked like. Sure. They sure. also mention I mean, that not everything is from the same period. But then in that same movie, they do exactly what you said. They make it turn invisible, which isn't really a trait that any animal has. There's camouflaging and then there's just being fully invisible, which right. is a completely right. different thing. Absolutely. And I think the other thing to bear in mind is that in the in the remake films, which the, the, the latest ones are effectively... They even throw in a line in the film, and this is why I love it. I, I mean, I the film was the first film. What was it? It wasn't Fallen Kingdom. What was the one before? It was Fallen just called Kingdom? Jurassic World. It was a Jurassic World, right? Yep. So what I liked about Jurassic World was that it was self-referential, and they said, "Well, people don't come to the park to see same old dinosaurs. We have to give them bigger and better." And it's like, well, right. that's Hollywood's mentality. We can't just show you more dinosaurs. We have to show you bigger and better dinosaurs. So we have to kind of go Michael Bay and just go over the, the top and go insanely uh, weird. Um, and I think that that's when it starts to fall down is where the emphasis is on super cool and super new and super entertaining while still trying to be vaguely realistic. Right. And there's, there's enough kind of... Um... Suspension of disbelief that is able to give to a premise like an island full of dinosaurs. But the right. issue that you and I really like when we talked about this before really came to like nuts and bolts. This makes no sense at all was specifically for Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. The auction scene. Yes. yes. Um, for if you haven't seen the movie, basically it gets to the point where we have this huge house that 
unbeknownst to the owner, had a whole dinosaur holding thing held underneath it with labs and cages and huge places for giant trucks to drive into. Right. The and, whole and, time, the person owning the house not knowing. That's and, a whole and, other issue. Yes. And he was in the house the whole time. That exactly. was the other thing. It's <laughs> like he's an invalid and he has a nice window that looks out over the beautiful park that they have set this house in. And he doesn't know what's going on. That, for me, was the weakest point. Uh, and then when it gets to the actual auction, yeah. they're selling these dinosaurs for like $2 million. Yes. And when you think about a dinosaur, I think... Most people, even in the world where, yes, dinosaurs exist, they still only exist on this one island. It's not like they're everywhere. It's really just this one place that they still existed. And now the island got destroyed in the beginning of it. So there's only a handful left. And they're just like, eh, I'll give you 20 bucks for a triceratops. And it just makes no sense. Exactly, exactly. I mean, if you look at real world stuff, um, I I come from Africa, so I've been part of these auctions and things, and you buy an elephant for $150,000. And that's today's price with something that is not uh, extinct, something that hasn't been brought back with vast amounts of science. Uh, And you're like, oh, okay, so for 10 times that much, I get a Stegosaurus? Cool, I will take that deal. Absolutely. Uh, That was, but, and, and you might say, well, that's just weak script writing, but that is part of world building, is making the world feel as if it exists and as if it's real. And yeah, six six million dollars is like, well, sure, I'll take all ten of them because I'll print that money in the first week of park operation, right? Exactly. Um, another thing that that you mentioned is a when the story and the world building just don't work at all because they are integral for it. So I want to move on to our next film that we have in bad world building, and that's Signs. Now, the whole premise of Signs is its downfall. Yeah. So aliens invade Earth. Earth's a pretty wet planet, (laughs) if I had to say so. A lot of water hanging out. Yeah. It's revealed to us that the weakness of the aliens, the ones invading the planet for whatever purpose they have, are weak to water. Yeah. Did they, like, what if they landed early in the morning and there was a whole bunch of dew on the grass? (laughs) Like, they just wouldn't have feet, and we never would have heard about it. Oh, they landed in Minnesota, where it rains all the time, and there are 10,000 lakes. I mean, uh, yeah. Like, there's so many places where if they would have landed, it would have gone wrong. If they were at a higher altitude when they landed, bunch of snow. They step on it, melts a little bit, donezo. It's the fact that they managed to at least land and survive (laughs) is impressive enough, let alone start trying to invade this poor small farm exactly it's like all right martha we have to wait for a completely clear day because our starship will melt in the in the rain uh you know what maybe we should just invade the sahara very little water there good place to form a good solid base and and from there we can expand but yeah i mean i really enjoyed the film right up until that point where it's like wait what it just it makes no sense none None whatsoever and it's it for me like it's harder for me to really get into a film if it has something like that that just doesn't work, like at all. And I think what makes it worse is that that happened right towards the end of the film. Yeah. So you've invested all of this time going, oh, well, it's because, you know, it's, I mean, it was, the performances were good. You've got um, 
Joaquin Gibson Phoenix. and Phoenix, yep. and you know, so you got a good cast, uh, and then suddenly it falls over flat, and it's like, oh, but why, 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 you know, uh, yeah. So, so the betrayal is even worse, and I think that's something that people also need to be very good, uh, very, very careful with, is that if you don't have good world building, as long as it's not good from the front, and people can sit back and go, oh, this is a kind of joke type thing where nothing really matters, nothing really makes mm -hmm. much sense. That's okay, because again, we will accept it if you establish that that is what it is up front. Absolutely. One thing that I find really interesting, um, moving on to our next film, is movies that can still succeed and be super enjoyable, even without good world building. Right. Um, not to say that all the world building in is bad, but there are some pretty key things that kind of make it a little flimsy. So we're going to talk about Indiana Jones. Um, not a specific Indiana Jones, just kind of all of them. Right. Um, not the fourth one. Well, <laughs> also, yeah. I mean, it falls into no. it. it it's such like... a bad movie. It, right. it doesn't belong in the sacred trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Indiana Jones makes you kind of presuppose a few things. Ancient relics actually hold the spiritual or um, divine energy yeah that folklore would tell you yeah whether that's the ark of the covenant or alien skulls no <laughs> you have to accept it it exists in the canon it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't it really doesn't no but you you are quite right but now that's an interesting example of progressive world building that doesn't remain true to its original kind of, of premise at all which mm -hmm. I think is is also, uh, that's not a failing of world building. I think that's a failing of narrative consistency, right? I mean, they, they kind of and both physics. lead into it. Physics is another yeah. one that failed completely there. Because if you put a, <laughs> you know, surviving atomic blast inside of a, a refrigerator is, yeah. Yeah. But but some of the issues of world building exist in the good ones as well. <laughs> yes, no, absolutely. In the original three. And I think that the challenge is, is the first one, it was Ark of the Covenant. So you go, okay, this film was made in the 1980s. So America was still very much a religious country, a very Christian country at that point. So the ideology behind it wasn't that flawed. What was interesting was that the, you know, Hitler and the Nazis were very much against religion, as a matter of fact, because they, they saw it as, as, as a whole bunch of, of it, it brought a whole bunch of issues. And of course, it raised moral questions that the socialists and the Nazis didn't want to answer. So, mm -hmm. but it's not a bad world building space. You go, okay, all right. So Ark of the Covenant has the superpower. All right, cool. That's great. Then we go into the second one, which is Temple of Doom. And Temple of Doom is like, well, actually also... Kali Ma, which comes from, and I stand to be correct, is either Hinduism or um, the the Tamil uh, religion, which I forget now. Um, nonetheless, it, it's an it's an uh, an alternative mythology god power, right? Because and at this point, then it says, well, it, with this logic, they're all real, right? Right, and that's where it falls down. Which is wild. So no matter whether it's an Abrahamic religion, no matter if it's Norse, no matter if it's right. um, Buddhism or like any any of these things, whether it's voodoo, like yep. it's wild to think that like you, I'll give it credit. It's like, hey, maybe not all like 
history is as wrong as we thought it was. Right. But right. There, it's there's not really a balance of, and I get why they wouldn't want to make the balance of saying like, oh, actually, no, it's only Christianity that's real and the rest are bad. I get why you wouldn't want to do that. Right. But <laughs> right. Doing, kind of having this blanket that all are real and tangible, even to the point of just conspiracy theories, not a religious doctrine, as right. they do in in the later films. Yeah. In the forgotten ones that we don't mention. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just, it's so, they're still really enjoyable movies. Yes. And I think, and even they, some of those premises, so yes, they're hunting for this stuff down, but they don't show that it's real until the very end. And you'd think that it might have the same effect as something like Seinstead, where they reveal, hey, actually our world building's a little whack right at the end. Right. But somehow it's still enjoyable enough to overcome it. And I think that's where like characters in a world building are so essential because if we didn't care enough about the characters in it, some of that world building would like everyone would hate it. If it, yes, if it well, wasn't an enjoyable ride. Correct. I mean, there's that, but also what they did, which was, I, I think a very, um, some of it was tongue in cheek, but it was also very good writing on behalf of Lucas and, and Spielberg in terms of making sure that it came across is that right up in the opening of the films of all three of them, there is usually the, this is what this thing does, or at least this is what it was supposed to do in the original, um, Raiders. There's a whole sequence where Harrison Ford's character Jones has to explain what the arc is and what it does. And that establishes an expectation within the audience to go, okay, cool. Well, yes, there is this thing that supposedly can do that stuff. So when it then happens later on, it's like, okay, cool. That makes more sense. We were, we were primed for it. So that for me was, was good world building in terms of saying, well, this is why our world is different. This is what you need to know. And here's how you find out now. The technique that they used there to by today's modern standards was a little bit here is the giant pineapple and you must now swallow this because if you don't the whole world doesn't make sense right that was okay and when we then go into to um temple of doom the first film has now acted almost as a well this is pulp action adventure stuff with some cool magic bits and pieces so when you when you look at uh, Temple of Doom as a standalone film, that opening sequence, which is a magnificent tap dancing extravaganza, <laughs> it's it's truly colossal, and it's not covered as it would be if it was part of the film. It's covered as if it was a live gigantic show, and when you cut to the exterior of the Obi Wan Cafe, which he's in. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have a giant stage that fits a 50 chorus line tap dancing spectacular, but it doesn't really matter. And people don't really notice that either. They just go, oh, it's a big dance number. And then the girls run through the dragon head. It's like, yes, but where is the gigantic theater that would have housed them on the other side of the building? It isn't there, but it doesn't, again, though, that doesn't really matter. What happens is when you then get to Crystal Skull is principally it's a change in human psyche and imagine if crystal skull hadn't been aliens imagine if it had been say judaism or if it had had been god there would have been such an outcry from all of the different religious groups that it would have been an insane amount of negative publicity so they had to go with the new thing which you can attack openly and no one will criticize which is aliens
once we start getting aliens arriving on Earth, we're going to have to change our monster again because we won't be able to do alien movies because it'll be as bad as doing religious negative films, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> you then look at it and you go, well, hang on, you established that you have all of these godlike beings that provide power. Oh, but now you can't use that because your audience no longer sees that as being a viable alternative and you'll be lambasted as promoting one religion over another, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So now you're just going to go with aliens. Which, if you look at the previous stuff, that in order for the Ark to work, that means that the Judeo-Christian faith is real. There yeah. ain't no room in that book for aliens. Yeah. <laughs> so you get this massive contradiction because the filmmakers wanted to pander to current... Um, ideology rather than to stay true to the world that they made yeah it's kind of wild <laughs> it is. when you really start diving into the repercussions of like their decisions to say no it's real and it's you know right jesus did it like <laughs> granted they don't specifically say anything like that but it it is it's implied yeah yeah and it's i don't know um i think we can get into our next section which is just decent world building Right. So these ones generally are kind of whole like Indiana Jones where they do cover multiple different movies. And because sometimes it really does work and sometimes it doesn't, that's kind of why we put it into decent world building. Because there are moments or specific films in these that have fantastic world building and then others that also exist. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so let's jump right into our first one on here. Pirates of the Caribbean. R. 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 So I think the first one set up a a decent enough premise. Yes, it brought in some supernatural elements with right. the, the Curse of the Black Pearl. Yes. But everything kind of made sense and it had an internal logic to it. Yes. yes, there was suspension of disbelief for this pirate adventure, but it also still fit into most of the pirate folklore at the time. You know, it, it really Correct. fit into like some of the horrors of the sea without going too overboard, at least not in the first one. Yes. And then they kept making them. They did. They and did. and they we ran into some issues. Well, they kind of ran out of world building because they needed to do more. And they're like, well, OK, let's do Davy Jones. OK, well, we've done that one. What's next? Oh, let's do, a, let's do uh, the Kraken. Kraken, let's do Chinese pirates, let's do this, let's do that. Oh my goodness. Uh, what else can we Mermaids, do? Mermaids, uh, you know. The uh, Fountain of Youth, you know the pirate thing. The yeah. exclusively pirate thing, Fountain <laughs> of Youth. Yes. And then in the next one, they're going to look for the Ark of the Covenant. And then we're just back to Indiana Jones again. <laughs> and it's, it's just a drunker Indiana Jones. Right. The <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I don't know. And one of the... I think one of the things that really, really irritated me going forward with um, like further iterations of it right. had nothing to do with like the sea creatures or Davy Jones or wow. like the lots of crabs or whatever yes. that helped find all, Johnny Depp all of his good peanuts to eat. <laughs> it was the fact that you never see them repair the main ship. Right. And it like it gets destroyed multiple times. Yeah. And it, by the next one, it's always brand spanking new. Yes. And well, it's always fine. Yes. I think what you're tapping into there is that the the real humans 
got more and more and more immortal as the sh as the films went along. So in the first to the point one, of literally coming back from death. Yes, or holding on to anchors as the sea parts and does all sorts of stupid things. Oh. Uh so that mortality factor, because when you look at the first pirates, the yes, there is the fantastical element of the undead and the curse and all that sort of thing. But the humans in it were very fallible and very, very much uh, at risk of death. And and their conflicts matched that, you know, like it yes. was the conflict of I don't want to get married to someone I don't know. Correct. Correct. Like that's a that's a human conflict for human issues. Yes. Then you move into like i don't want to turn into a, a fish boy on this ship <laughs> and it's much less of a human i mean granted me as a human i also don't want to turn into a fish boy so i can get it but right. it become like you don't believe them as much as as human characters when they're yes. dealing with things that you would never have to deal with not right. to say that you have to completely discount any sort of fantastical um conflict but it kind of when when you first start off and you establish it as mostly human conflict right then going forward when you have 30 different johnny depps on a boat <laughs> all at the same time it just it gets too wild it does it does and that's yes your your world building gets too too out of touch and i think when you look at, let's say, for example, uh, District 9, which is very close to my heart because it was filmed in my hometown in South Africa, there you have a character who is going through a transformation. They're going from human into alien, mm -hmm. uh, which is all, they were called prawns, which is also, you know, a sea creature type of thing. So the, the, the parallel is there, except that I feel that the narrative there was that journey wasn't the emphasis. The emphasis was the lack of the collapse of relationships, the complete uh, shift of mentality of the main character. You know, so the, the, the journey was the same, transform mm -hmm. into something else, but the one was relatable, the other one was not. And I, again, it, that does fall into the world building space because the mechanics of how those things happen need to make sense exactly yeah um let's move on since we're already talking about fish people i think it's only fair to move into some of the most famous fish people in star wars the great yes. battle of space as to be expected with any sort of grandiose epic in space where you have to kind of build a lot of things from the ground up where they're not coming from earth you don't have a foundation you're starting everything in a world completely removed from normal humanity normal earth the things that we can kind of latch into it's expected to have some logical inconsistencies and boy oh boy does it oh, it yeah. certainly does oh yeah uh, I mean, let's, should we just rapid fire, go over a couple of the big ones? <laughs> Look, I mean, the, the, the difference, I think, is when you compare the original films in the 70s and 80s to the remakes in the early nine, well, in the late 90s, early thousands, and then the current ones, um, because you can see three very distinct eras of world building ironically in the same world and there are a whole bunch of reasons as to why that why that happens but 
Yes, the whole mentality of the the aliens being humanoids with prosthetic heads was a legacy from the 1950s, the 1960s in terms of filmmaking, where you didn't have this approach to to anything other than humanoids. And so as a result, you didn't get that until the 2000s where suddenly Lucas was like, I'm going to invent a creature that walks on its hands and has feet as well, which act like its hands, but they're not its hands, they're its feet. You know, he, he right. was just doing stuff because he had CGI all of a sudden. Um, and that supposedly freed him up, but we still didn't see a journey into anything other than, oh, these are just stretched humans. Okay, these are still humanoid. So this human's got a really long neck. Right, right. Or this one just looks kind of like a hammerhead shark or, and you uh -huh. know, when you read the extended material, when you read the books and when you read all of that sort of stuff, then there is definitely more that gets brought into it. But the most exciting alien that he put in there was the huts, slug people. And you yeah. go, okay, cool. That's different. That's something, something something to look out for but generally speaking as you say we have the mon calamari the most original name ever for fish people <laughs> right yeah and there's something to be said for drawing from real life names from real life animals to to instantaneously tell your audience what these people are about but at the same time why calamari I mean, he could have called them monoctopy or anything other than calamari, which is a dish. It's an edible dish. Yeah, Why? it's because then because then you start getting into the implications. Oh, are these the people that we eat? Maybe. Right. right. It's it's such a like the it's I present to you, Chancellor Hamburgathon. Hamburgathon. Right. Do we eat him? And it's like, well, no. But it's like, then why did you make him a food? Exactly, exactly. And then you get something like Cy Snootles, who has this really long proboscis-like thing that ends in red ruby lips, and she has a human voice. Come on. Yeah, you know, it's... I mean, we could we could probably do a whole thing oh, yeah. just based on the Stupid cantina alien. alone. Yes, exactly. You know, everything from Salacious B. Crumb to right. uh, the Sarlacc, you know? Yes, Yes. And, and for me, that's, you know, it's, it's a great failing because on the one hand, you have this super dark film or series of films that talk about human failure and emotions and um, the destruction of billions of people for the sake of one sort of person's ego. So you've got these really heavy themes and then you have the cantina where it yeah and the cantina is still full of heavy themes i mean there's mass violence that happens in it and no one really cares and there's implied and slavery it, oh absolutely absolutely the wookies were enslaved the mon calamari were enslaved i mean admiral akbar was supposedly general tarkin's slave or, or um not general tarkin grand muff tarkin's slave Mm -hmm. um, before the film a new hope even starts so you've got all of those kind of things and we went back to that with Rogue One. Rogue One was a very dark film. And the 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 lightness, you know, from 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 um the the droids 
was was returned to us as it had been in the in the 1977 film new hope mm-hmm. but uh, you know that legacy of stupid things happening in the background was still there um and 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 it's also curious to say well lucas took it to the stupid extreme with his cgi aliens and and, and that kind of stuff and then it was See, we kind of returned back also, with, with awakening there, there are certain things that like even even in the prequels that like you can suspend your disbelief because everything is that wild but then in something like rogue one where it's taking itself seriously you have a character say i've been in this fight since i was six years old right and the implication of that is that the rebellion is hiring child soldiers and that's a wild <laughs> yes <laughs> yes that's probably that well not probably that is that's the script writing fail you're right. Again, you know, it's it's also people not not realizing the implications of of dialogue, and often, you know, this is something that I find often in script writing is where you have guys writing scripts and they go, "Oh, I need to prove that this person's been doing this for a long time, and I need to prove that they're very competent at what they're doing, and that they are battle scarred, and this is why they're surly." Oh, if I just tell the audience that they've been doing this for a long time, that will work. But the yeah. sentence, "I've been doing this for a long time." is not considered strong enough to convey that. So you say, well, I've been doing this since I was six years old. And the, or, the, the writer doesn't go, well, what, where, when, what, the, what, what era would that put them in? That yeah. would put them in the Clone Wars. Uh, wait, hang on. How does this work? You know, so yeah, absolutely. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's an inconsistency, but there's so much other stuff going on. It is so epic. It is so massive that it's, as you say, it's decent world building with gripes, which may p- just be personal, you know, personally. I mean, you might find people who go, but no, but Mon Calamari is an amazing name and it really works and it's evocative and it's this and that and the next thing. So, yeah. Exactly. So let's, let's move on to one that people might not hold as highly in regard, just so we don't right. ruffle too many feathers. Let's go to a place that's got a lot of space feathers. Avatar, the wonderful world of Pandora presented by James Cameron. Oh. Um, the reason why we put this into decent world building is because it's a pretty interesting world. Mm. Um, and like it, there are interesting bits to it, but the world completely overshadows any sort of story. Like it, there, there've been so many different videos and articles about people going out and trying to see what people remember about the movie avatar. And no one can even say like characters names or general plot points, but they remember the world. That's it. I actually started watching it on my plane flight, what now, uh, six weeks ago. I still couldn't tell you the name of the lead character uh, <laughs> or Sigourney Weaver's doctor's name for that matter. It's Dr. Weaver. It's Dr. Sigourney. <laughs> there she is doing her science. Dr. Sigourney doing her thing. <laughs> um, I, you know what I loved about that film was that, uh, you know, when you saw Doctor, uh, when you saw Sigourney Weaver as a blue alien. I mean, do we even remember what they called Pandorians? The Navi. I remember. The Navi. This. There we go. Yes, that's right. The Navi. Which Sorry. is stolen yes. from Zelda, but it's whatever. Well, stolen from Zelda. The whole film was basically a Dances with Wolves remake. Exactly. So instead of Tatanka, Far less Kevin Navi, Costner. right? Well, yes. With because <laughs> the again, uh, I don't think that James Cameron would ever be accused of being a sensationalist director. I mean, he 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 uses technology to try and tell his stories as best he can. And usually his stories are very, you know, character centric. 
I do think though that he failed in terms of Avatar, where as you say, the world is overpowering, the the visual effects take center stage. I mean, this was trying to prove three D technology to the world as well. Um, so there was a lot of a lot of external factors, and I think that's an interesting thing that I have just realized now. As you look at it and you go, Jurassic World started to fail when the filmmakers were trying to use the world setting to make the film better. Exactly, because the world and, building, it, it needs to be not, you like characters are a part of world building. It's not just, yes. do you have an interesting concept for how the, the underbelly of this criminal planet works? It has right. to be like, does is there a logical consistency? Does it work with the characters that were in there? Yes. It world building is the world as a whole. It's not just the background city. It is everything from how the character dresses to their naming conventions to all the strange and wondrous creatures they may find on their journey. And ironically, that should be hidden in the film. It shouldn't be the film. Because if you think about it, that changes it from being a feature film to being a travelogue about an alien planet. Exactly. <laughs> So it could have just been that, like a VR game. Well, it's a just VR like travel explore this yeah. cool world. Exactly. And that's it. It's not a narrative. Correct. 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 Or at least not a, a great one. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. So um, let's move into some of our great ones, just to kind right. of keep the ball rolling here. Um, movies that kind of do all of the things that were shortcomings of the previous ones. Right almost without fail and there are a couple of here that we will have a bit of contention on between the two of us but i stand firm in my belief so let's start on the one that i know that we agree on the most right lord of the rings has fantastic world building yes and i think the emphasis must be on lord of the rings not the hobbit <laughs> and i say yeah, that because a lot of people will probably i mean because we're talking film right Right. We're not talking book. So if we're talking books, then it's absolutely fine. There's consistency across the 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 the, the board. I mean, Tolkien was a world building fanatic. Um but when we're talking feature films, The Lord of the Rings, yes. The Hobbit, no. Right. Just for absolute clarity here. Because not, again, not to say that you can't enjoy the Hobbit or or any of the other no, you can't enjoy the bad. I mean we put you do enjoy Indiana the Hobbit, Jones. you're a bad, bad person and you deserve oh, to go to a so bad, mean. bad place. <laughs> What if I like it? What are you going to say to me? You're a bad, bad person. You should go to a bad, oh, bad place. Oh, no. <laughs> what um, he did with that film was to take something that could have been epically spectacular as a single film and tried to, once again, allow the world building to show off more than the characters. Right. Um, a lot of that was studio pushing him. No, Peter of course. Jackson's still of my course. homie. Absolutely. But let's talk about no, no. let's talk I, about I, the good ones. Yes, as far as director, I absolutely love him when he does his own stuff. Right. Um, so some of the things that really make Lord of the Rings work. Yes. yes, you have these fascinating backgrounds in cities, but they all have a culture and a history to them. The the yes. architecture and like the clothing match, as yes. well as some of the personality. If you look at um, the Elvish city, Rivendell. Oh right. my god! I almost completely blanked on that, that name, and I would have had that. that. I was I was ready to get you back there. I was ready to jump. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the architecture has a logic to it, and it makes sense for like the climate that they're in. It makes yes. sense for the amount of time that they're supposedly 
been there and the attention to detail the armor makes sense the weapons make sense it all has a logical consistency to it Correct. the same when you go to any of these different like civilization or like communities so everything in in the shire looks like it should be in the shire right everything right. in the in gondor looks exactly how everything in gondor would look and it looks different than the hobbit or uh than the than the shire yes but they still make sense in the same world Correct, and I think and that's what's important. So good, <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, it, you look at the hub at, at the Shire. They built the set for the exteriors of the Shire a year before they started filming, so that the foliage could grow and start to take over in a more convincing way than just getting the greens people to come in and put down plants exactly. and, and and that sort of thing. So more than just the set dressing, it's the yeah, action. exactly, like, exactly. It's a real tangible thing. Yes, but principally, at no point in the Lord of the Rings, really, does it ever feel as if Peter Jackson is going, oh, look, we spent years making uh, Minas Tirith, so now you're going to see thousands and thousands of shots of Minas Tirith, or you're going to see the characters running across the walls and jumping and sliding and doing this and that where we're showcasing all of the beauty of Minas Tirith. You'll see Gandalf riding Shadowfax as the walls are being destroyed because exactly. he has to get from point A to point B and those walls just happen to be there. Yeah. So the world building is very, very consistent. The filmmakers paid huge amounts of attention to making sure that it felt real and then said, and now you go into the background because right. our story is about the characters. And the only time it really uses these kind of large scoping shots that really show everything is when they're traveling large distances. Exactly. It's exactly. always in service of the story. That's and it. that's where the full world building comes kind of into fruition, where every single piece of the puzzle works together and makes a, something even more beautiful. That's it. Yeah. Because if any of those things failed, like if there were not to say that the movie would be a complete train wreck if one of those things failed, but everything working in it kind of elevates it. It moves it everything up because like the story is still really, really good. But that attention to detail and logical consistency. Yes. Is just out of know, this world. Yeah. When you look at when you look at, say, the battle between Legolas and the Mamukil and there's there was some pretty pretty amazing footwork happening there compare that then to the hobbit where once again we have legless jumping all over the place <laughs> climbing through buildings as they're collapsing in mid-air and you go well hang on a moment the level of of realism has just stepped away from from logic and again i know that that they were rushed and they were trying to force things to happen. But when you think of the Lord of the Rings, in my mind anyway, as you say, each environment, each world space felt different. Whereas in the, the Hobbit, it all just kind of felt muddily blurred together and mm -hmm. big 4K, I mean, not 4K, 8K, HD, you know, all the... The projection tech and 60 frames or whatever the, the 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 thing that they were pushing at the time to me it just all felt very bright and and hollywood saturated 500 percent for the the visual impact rather than the narrative story 
And and the thing that's wild about that is it's the same people working on it. They still had yeah. Weta workshops involved that did a lot of the like kind of practical effects right. for it. They still had a lot of the same art direction and a lot yeah. of the same team coming back. But when you don't have enough time to flesh things out or you don't have as much effort and commitment to flesh things out as much as you want to yes. or as it should be, yes, then you can run into some of those problems. That's it. And I mean, when you look at the behind the scenes of both films, the effort was 100% on both of them. But when, yes, again, you look at the, the, the Hobbit, that final battle was so lackluster, no one cared. It's like, oh, okay, sure. Well, you know, Billy Connolly's character, his costuming was sublime. It was incredible. Yeah. I love the fact it. that we got Billy Connolly on a big pig with a giant hammer. Yes. That's fantastic. But aside from having Billy Connolly's Scottish volume, there was nothing <laughs> else to the character. Exactly. You know, there was like no... his character was Billy Connolly, but he's on a pig. Exactly. Exactly. So rather than being transported to the Battle of the Five Armies, we're just seeing some cool effects. Oh, and a fat uh, Legolas is jumping on the walls. I hate to say it, but he he did not he did not look as if he was a young Legolas. Right. And, well, and that's one of the things of going back and doing a prequel that they run into. Correct. That's a lot of and that has to do with kind of technical stuff, which I'm hoping that the Irishman doesn't run into that. That's a, that's coming out next month. Uh, it's right. Martin Scorsese's new picture that uses a lot of de-aging technology. I'm really yes. hoping that that actually succeeds in that. Let's move on. Because yes. Lord of the Rings, we could talk forever, ever, ages, um, yes. eon, Salmarillion's worth of content. <laughs> um, let's talk about um, Willow. Now, yeah. I am not as familiar with Willow. I have not seen the film. Right. So I'm going to lend the reins over to you. Okay. So I listed Willow in this, this list of good world building because Willow, first it was a film that was made in the 80s. And it was, once again, George Lucas was, was involved in the the whole process ilm industrial light and magic was the principal special effects producers on that but we were still in the age pre-computer generated effects so we have this world this fantasy world and the entire film's premise is based around the the journey of willow wafgood who is this little sorcerer mage and by little i mean he is he is in the film he is a dwarf uh, or a hobbit more than anything else. But what they did for, for this film was that they didn't use um, perspective shift and that sort of thing as they did with Lord of the Rings. They hired uh, little people to play all of those roles. And it worked really, really well because what that showed was that there wasn't a, oh, the bar needs to be built for humans and it needs to accommodate. You know, it, they really had to build a world to show the differences in height because those differences were real. It wasn't uh, forced or, 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 or faked. Right. And, you know, so we had some interesting monsters and there was, there was rules, not huge amounts of rules to how the magic worked, but there was magic and there was this, this wonderful air of mystery. So I just really liked it because it felt like a very different space to what we were normally used to. There was a grittiness to that entire space and most of the effects were either stop motion animation, which when you look at it today, you go, wow, okay, this is this is pretty lame. Except that if you bear in mind that it was made now, what, 30 odd years ago, 
you go, okay, I can get past that and I can see that there is a consistent world. There's all kinds of really cool things that have been established. And and for me, that's that was really strong. And again, the world was the backdrop. It wasn't the focus. The focus was on the story of Mad Mordigan and, and, and Willow. And I think one of the important things that you mentioned briefly is anything to do with magic. I think the less you explain it, the better. If you look at something like Harry Potter, where the whole thing is about a school of wizards, then the magic doesn't seem as mystifying or because they literally show you in the lessons everything for it. So you kind of lose that kind of fantastical sense of it. Um, whereas when you don't explain something as much, you still give a little bit of context for it. Mm. But if you if you leave enough open to kind of the imagination and the wonder of it, especially if it's supposed right. to be this kind of wondrous thing, then the less you explain, the better. As opposed to sci-fi, where everything needs to like have a logic consistency to it. Yes, there needs to be something that 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 works there. Uh, a good example is Bright, that uh, Netflix film, where you've got orcs and you've got elves and you've got humans. They don't go into anything about the origins, about the magic, about they ignore that, and it doesn't make it a bad film, in my opinion. The world building, you kind of go, okay, well that kind of makes sense. The elves are all pretty and glamorous and orcs are downtrodden okay i i can see where the space is it was very shorthand for for a whole bunch of issues that are currently plaguing society but as you say they didn't need to explain where the elves evolved from and why did orcs evolve and it, it, it was just like boom here's our world accept it move forward yeah uh there is a lot of issues with bright though <laughs> <laughs> So, so I think that I think that's a good point, though. A bad movie can still have good world building. Oh, you didn't like it? Oh no, <laughs> no. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's a comfort. But I, I think that it's important to note that we great movies can have bad world building. Bad movies can have great world building, and okay. it's still important for all of it. Well, we're still talking about bad movies. So let's talk about the last one. Oh my, Lanta. He really went and did it. I did it. Alrighty. So what I put as great world building is Blade Runner 2049, the follow-up um, from Denis Villeneuve, of course, to Ridley Scott's original Blade Runner. And I think it has fantastic world building. So, Guy, why don't you break me down some issues and I'll serve you up a hot <laughs> plate of why you're wrong. <laughs> Blade Runner 2049 has the same legacy pro uh, problem that Star Trek has. The original Blade Runner posited that we would have flying cars, AI that is indistinguishable from humans under normal circumstances. Unless you have a Von Kampf death, you know. Sure, <laughs> right. By this time period, as a matter of fact, this year, 20, 2019. So when you then take that and you say, okay, well, that's what they were projecting, but this was done, when was Blade Runner? It was in the 80s or early mm -hmm. 90s, right? I was, it was 80s. 80s, yeah. They did not know what 2019 was going to be like. The problem is you then transpose that into Blade Runner 2049 and you go, well, you, you're, you're still in the same space that you posited 30 years ago. But now instead of AI, we've got virtual holograms, which have a much better response, etc. To me, it doesn't feel as if there's a consistency to that world space. Um, 
it's it that the, 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 they haven't updated themselves so if if they had just called it blade runner alternative world it would work better for me one awful title first of all <laughs> okay sure maybe <laughs> a different title 2049 right? is a great title but <laughs> kind of but in 2049 we can do a follow-up interview where i'm going well, the film still doesn't bloody well work because look, it's 2049 and we still don't have flying cars. Um, so remo removing the issue of it having the year attached to it and us living in that year, removing that because it's yes. like an alternative reality kind of thing. Yes. Like in the high yes. castle, things like that. Right. Um, so having the alternative reality, I think it, it that's not as much of an issue because that's easy to be like, oh, things went a different way. Yes. At some point. Correct. You know. Correct. Correct. Um, and it's that, you know, th that is the challenge that we face currently in terms of building science fiction worlds is in the 80s, we could go wherever we wanted. And there was really the, the, the consciousness of man was still very much based on on almost Vernian style future projections. Computers were starting to come in, but they still hadn't yet shown us what we were capable of. Mm -hmm. And like I said, Star Trek has the same problem is that when Star Trek was running in the 60s, the tech that they had in the 60s, we have most of that today, which is only, what, 40 years, 50 years later. So then Star Trek with Captain Picard and that kind of stuff, which is 300 years later, it's like, what were you guys doing? Were you just <laughs> slacking off? Because yeah. as humans, we got there faster. So it's always, so, well, moving forward is going to be a problem for science fiction people right. anyway. So in terms of the evolution of technology, you mentioned mm. specifically for Blade Runner that now they have, you know, they have the, they still have flying cars and they have almost all the same operating system inside yes. of the car, but they also have these large scale holograms, ones that can take up an entire right. street yes. um, as just an advertisement. Now, the, the point I want to, I really want to drive in is about wealth inside of the film. So, and, and how it connects to real life. So, yes, there are current things today that are super technologically advanced, but they're not available to everyone. And if we look at the apartment that Officer K has, he's not living in luxury. You know, he's, he's saving all of his money in order to buy this one hologram as right. like, this is his only splurge. It's like when you go to a house and it's not a new house, but they have a nice TV and a nice like gaming system in it. You can have a nice thing in in these kind of more rundown places. Obviously, in this case with Officer K's apartment, it's a drastic difference between like the state of his apartment, like just walking him, watching him walk into his apartment and then seeing that um, that hologram right. <laughs> turn on when he gets in there. I think that kind of shows the that escapism still exists in that world. Sure. And the fact sure. that you have, like, if you look at the difference between um, a technological, like, Saviant that Jared Leto plays in that, his mm -hmm. building and the stuff that he has is super sleek, top of the line, like, crazy modern. Right. The same right. when you go to the, um, the, the memory making facility, right. you know, right. like, they just have a door, <laughs> but then inside the technology is super impressive. Sure. But then you, you put that next to 
um, anything that Officer K is going, or you go to literally the place where they salvage ships. There's no tech everywhere. Everything's right. done by book. It sure. shows that the technology is consistent to the people that would have it. And that's where I think it does a fantastic job of world building. Well, yes, okay. it shows that things have not evolved as much. There are still advancements. We're just not following the characters that would see all of them. Right. And we do get those glimpses of, wow, look how far they've advanced. You know, you have this guy that like can have robots that he can see out of like remote control robots multiple at a time. And he can see all of that. And somehow it's coherent for him. Right. Right. Um, and, but he's a wealthy individual. Like he's insanely stupidly wealthy in right. order to have all these just knickknacks. He's making like, let me let me let me ask you this AI. in a different way. Because when we talk about world building, right? Mm -hmm. There there are there are a lot of different criteria that we can look on. But do you think that that world is where we will be in twenty years time? Because that's basically how far away it is. Oh, 30 years time but again i think that concession of whether like because they put a date on it that's I the think, biggest I think problem that's an, an issue for it it you can say the same thing for robocop i'm saying sure removing removing the year because the, it doesn't feel like since we've already passed 2019 and right. the first blade runner is made completely out like it's obviously like it's taking that world and still running with it i think that the year is kind of superficial. And I think it's still good that they keep it on Earth so they have a little bit of that realism to it. It's like, well, then you can have, like, here's what Las Vegas turns into. But I think that the year doesn't quite match anything. Um, and I think that's a fair argument for it. But for me, I think there's enough, like... I don't know. I don't know. I think, you know... I, but again, this is also one of the things where, where you start looking at it and you go, okay, let's let's... Let's think about what the world is going to be like in 30 years and then try and project that into a film. Sure, we can go in crazy different directions. We can go in the directions that Elon Musk wants to push us in. That's still world building, but it's a different type of world building where now you are being a futurist and you're trying to predict how we're going to operate in, in, in the future. When you're dealing with legacy stuff, which is, is Blade Runner's space, you're saying, okay, well, this was established then because that was what we thought it was going to be like we now know very differently that it's going to look very different from that perspective but it's, how it's do we goal you know, is to follow up the legacy part it's not to say right. hey this is this is what it would be like in today's perspective because i think it would well, be a completely different movie it would be a very different film and it would have nothing to do with blade runner agreed agreed so why bother putting the title why put the date in the title why not just call it blade runner or Blade Runner 2, or Blade Runner The Return, or Blade Runner Evolution, where it doesn't give us a date. Because if we didn't have a date, then it would just be a sci-fi film, and you go, okay, cool, well, that's fine. But by putting a stamp on it for a, for a year that the majority of those who've watched that film will get to, hopefully, mm -hmm. I feel like they're saying, well, this is what we think the future is going to be like. And I don't think that that's a very good future. But I think it's to show the passage of time for the characters in it, specifically Rick Deckard. Like it, it's to show sure. like, oh, here's sure. how much time has passed before even just showing him. Yeah. So you already know it's like, oh, these are the things that have happened. This is right. how much time has passed in that world. And I think the year only 
exist as 2049 because that's the amount of time that would have passed from the events of the previous film. So I would blame Ridley Scott in the first one for putting a year on it. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Yeah, Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott. Um, so to, to kind of wrap up world building, there are a couple of gray areas that we'll just very quickly mention um, of ones that you have to kind of take with a grain of salt. Yeah. Um, so artist reality films. Yes. So basically things that are done to serve like that kind of break the world, but are done for a purpose. Um, submarine films. Yes. For example, major you know, inconsistency in submarine films. Exactly. The it's, they can still be super enjoyable and like fascinating to look at those long hallway shots, but that's not how a submarine work. I'm no expert, but it don't work like that. Exactly. It doesn't, it doesn't. Um, and same with I, superhero movies, superhero movies. Absolutely. Oh, so there's some superheroes that have superpowers, but they only live in America. No, wait, we've got some others. They live elsewhere, but they just don't do anything when there's world ending events. It's only these six that do something about it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, another thing is any spoof films, and I think that kind of comes with it being a spoof film, you know? So, like, yes. Spaceballs is a good example. Like, all the world building is to set up a joke Correct. more often than not, you know? So the fact that they have uh, VHSs of the actual world that they're living in. And they can fast forward it. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Or they capture their stunt doubles. Um, yes, I love that film. Yeah. So and, and that's all for the bit. It's in service of whatever the goof Correct. and gag they're going for. Another thing is animated films. Mm. Um, some like more often than not, that's kind of inconsistencies with physics. Um, yes. You know, but it's it's again all for that kind of because everything is fake. It not all of them are trying to be realistic. You know, as right. opposed to you get something like like Wally, where everything has this like beautiful grainy texture, and then you know there's these like blob people Bubble that people. look yeah. super cartoony. Yeah, I mean there are cartoons, but <laughs> it's the kind of dissonance there. Do you sacrifice your storytelling for realism? Do you do you sacrifice um, realism for story? Uh, personally, I think story should always triumph over realism mm -hmm. because we're watching a film. We're not watching exactly. a documentary or a travelogue. And like even even some of the things that we that we say, there's so much suspension of disbelief already for even ones that we said were really good, like Lord of the Rings. If we just sat there and said, Yeah, but orcs aren't real, then right. we like we wouldn't enjoy anything, you know? Exactly. If we're like, there's no way we can actually see this because unless they acknowledge that there's a camera behind them, it's like, yeah, okay, shut up. <laughs> like you can well, you can have your your nitpicky things that are still fun to talk about with world building, but Obviously, we're not going the full scale of like only documentaries or real movies. Right. And the moment you put a camera into that space anyway, you're altering it. So you can't actually have a realistic documentary. Yeah. Exactly. Being there, done that, had the argument. I think I think that gives a nice little glimpse into world building. Obviously, like any of these films on here and of course, the multitude of films we didn't talk about, you can do a, a much deeper dive into world building. Um if you want to know a little bit more about world building, I think I know of a place where you can find some stuff about that. Uh, if you guys go to greatgamemaster.com, you can also look up how to be a great GM on, on YouTube. Uh, is that also your, your Twitch handle for that? Twitch or is handle that... is how to GM. How to GM. Oh, no, no, sorry, 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 sorry. Twitter handle is how to GM. Twitch is just great GM. Absolutely. You have some amazing... 
um, videos on world building. And some of them, because a lot of these worlds um, that you discuss in like tabletop gaming do exist with actual like film adaptations. So there's a lot of great Star Wars ones, for example, about right. how to world build as like uh, how how to make an empire function logically. Right. Um, which I... I really like those videos, by the way. Well, thank you. <laughs> not not as just a thank you for the guests, but like genuinely, they are really fascinating videos. Even if you don't play tabletop RPGs and don't have investment in that, which you should anyway, because that's a great fun time, you can still get enjoyment on the logic of world building because it really does apply to all storytelling. It really does. It does. All righty. Awesome. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, if you want to plug any last things, I know I already did a little bit for you. Uh, the floor is yours, good sir. Yeah, I think um, the only thing that I can look at from an, another perspective is if you are a world builder and you want to to really delve into into all of the aspects of world building, uh, head on over to www.worldanvil.com. They're really good at that kind of thing. Um, in terms of giving you templates and 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 that is completely agnostic. It's for film, it's for writers, it's for mm -hmm. for storytellers. It's really really cool. Um, so yeah, I did a whole series of videos on how to be inspired by all of the stuff that they posit. So they talk about things like what's your transportation system, what's your physics system, what's your world. You know, all of the things that we talk about in world building. Um, and I mean, we're busy doing a series now on the channel where we have been going since the 1st of January. The series ends in December and it's a years long, once a week world building thing where we unpack all of the different elements that you can look at and how you use your characters to make your world feel real by making the characters uh, acknowledge the world that they're in. So often that also fails to happen. So um, yeah, I would have a look at that. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's been an awesome conversation. Love to have you again on in the future talking about any sort of things from how films get made in South Africa to uh, LGBT representation as films evolve with society. Right. There's so many things you could talk about. You're like a crazy expert on everything, huh? <laughs> kind of like I should have a YouTube channel, right? I, maybe you should. Hey, maybe have you ever thought about doing videos? <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Thank you for thank you for coming. Absolute pleasure. And we're back. Hello. Whoa, that was such a that was a fun. That you did great. Ian. Thanks. You haven't heard it. <laughs> we're you recording this so before the good. episode's done, so you haven't heard because you weren't there. But thank you so Ethan, much. What was your you favorite part? The entire piece. It was so good. <laughs> you did really fucking. Oh my good. god! Thank you so Ethan, much, Dave. I'm just do, wait. Do they give Oscars? For podcast, right? To you. Give it to you. <laughs> oh, thank you. You take it. Are you saying that it's <laughs> that would be a better podcast than the actual podcast we do? Fuck no! <laughs> Damn, <laughs> that got zesty. A little spice there, huh? Packing a little heat. Uh, yeah, no. I think I think this is the best podcast uh, on on air. Uh, well, that on... didn't seem as much vigor in that part <laughs> as your, your fervent defend in the beginning. Um, yeah, so let's 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 wrap up the show now that we're back to our our main main structure. The boys are back. You and me the were the normal ones. Most episodes, it's just us talking. Um, yeah. Occasionally, we have some other special guests on. We'll probably 
have more special guests in the future. But right now, you're just stuck with us. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, oh, frick, David. Yeah, except here's the thing about Pitch and Fix. It's got a theme song. Yeah, it does. Yeah, A rotating theme song. Hey, since I, Let's hear since it. I, since I did the actual episode, uh, I think you have to do the theme song contractually. No, no, no. No, 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 no. no. Contractually, I don't... I'm, this is not my... Con- Except I, don't do music. I think you are having to improvise a song because a little behind the scenes, peek behind the curtain, there's the Wizard of Oz. The reason that it was just me is you just didn't wake up on time. I don't know what you're talking about. I was in the hospital. <laughs> David, David, Hospital how card has been played? We recorded at like eleven a.m. Right? And what time did I you was wake making, up? I was making breakfast and I fell into the oven and I couldn't get out until six thirty p.m. <laughs> I was in there for a long time. Ethan. As punishment for <laughs> this great heinous crime to our professional podcasting career, you. Good sir, whether you like it or not, are required to do the Pitch and Fix song. Go. The Pitch and Fix song. We're going to fix a movie. Ethan's going to give a pitch. Pitch and Fix. All right. Kill me quick. This is too painful. <laughs> oh, that was miserable. Um, that that is, was really good. That is the theme song to Pitch and Fix, the ever-present segment with the ever-changing theme song. It's a fun bit, but the thing is, we always forget that it's a bit, because it's always <laughs> improvised. It doesn't feel like it should be, but it's... No, we always... You can tell by the quality that we didn't plan it. <laughs> I always forget that it's something that we do until when we're doing mm-hmm. it, and then it happens, and I'm like, fuck what the fuck? And you usually don't um, have to do it, so... No, I don't. But you do good. You have a musical... You're musically inclined. I... David. Uh, David, y- I freestyle rapped in the last one, and it was the worst. Do you want to pitch first? We always start... With the, we have a structure, David. We start with the fix, we end with the pitch. Okay. Tell them what you're fixing. Okay. I am fixing... I wish I could say Netflix's most recent original movie, but they have, like... Seven a day. I swear to God. They have so fucking many where I'm like, wow, everything's on Netflix. That's more now. than women's vitamins get. They only get the one a day. God, that was a that was a vitamin joke. Have we really run out of all the jokes that we're on to vitamin jokes? Uh, <laughs> Ethan, how long is your bit with Guy? <laughs> this is going to be the longest episode. <laughs> I'm going to blow through this. Fixed real quick. Yeah, go for so, it. So, Brenda Song just dropped her newest movie called Secret Obsession. Ooh. Were you obsessed with this? It? Is this your secret fuck? obsession? No. Ooh, this movie's really bad. This is my worst movie of the year so far. So, Damn. what happens is Brenda Song has a stalker in this movie. And, like, it opens up, like, probably, like, 15 minutes before the end of, like, a normal horror movie, right? Where he has, like cornered her and she's out of her car running down a road and then she gets hit by a car and put into a coma and loses her memory and he shows up to the hospital as her husband and like takes her home and then like obviously weird shit ensues because it's a shitty horror movie and she finds out that like this isn't actually my husband 
right? Mm-hmm. But it's like it's pl- it's trying to play with that idea the entire time, right? But the issue with the with the movie is that you know he isn't the husband, and there's just no suspense there because she finds out pretty quickly, and you're just like, okay, now we're just sitting in a stupid situation, you know. My fix for this is that we get rid of Peter Sullivan, and honestly, we can scrap the writers too. Fuck them. <laughs> Sorry. They barely showed and, up in the first place. <laughs> what we're going to do is we're going to put Dan Trachtenberg in there. He's the one who wrote, or he co-wrote, co-wrote and directed 10 Cloverfield Lane. Okay. Which I feel like does a lot better. With a somewhat uh, similar With that, like, conflict. ambiguity. Yeah. Yes, where you're like, you don't know if this person is who they're saying they are, right? Just like John Goodman's character. Or what the point is, is, like, what their their motive is, whether they're lying or not. I would also cut the opening five minutes of this movie and open up with her being in the hospital the day after the crash. You know? And that way you don't, like, see, like, oh, she was being attacked. And you open up with the husband showing up because... You're supposed to be in her shoes, and she wouldn't remember anything prior to the crash, so why show that? Mm -hmm. Right? And so he comes in, and, like, the guy who is in this is just terrible. Fucking horrible. So we gotta get somebody more likable in there. Maybe a Bradley Cooper? Maybe too likable. Uh, Why not, like, John Krasinski? Uh, Actually, perfect. Uh, But he needs to, like, lose a few of those pounds of muscles that he's been putting on recently. Jack Ryan bulk. He's, yeah. (laughs) Um, But that's the perfect casting, though. So he comes That's into why the I'm hospital the playing, playing this husband figure, but we don't know it, right? And so he takes her home, and we can, like, everything's just normal for a while until you start to see a few of these, like, seeds that are getting planted, the, the like, kind of weird doubt. actions. Yeah. Interesting. And then I want to, like, unravel this more because, like, this is just so, like, it's so stupid where, like, she literally hears an entire conversation, and then... He lies about it to a second later to her. And I'm like, wait a second. That's red flags all over. She gets locked in a fucking room, and she's like, did he just lock me in here? And I'm like, big red flag. Okay. Huge red flag. So you wanted to have some more of the tension of, say, like a Zodiac or, or Gone Girl. I know you've been hot on that Fincher train lately. Yes. I was even thinking more of the tension of, like, Alfred Hitchcock's rope, where you know something in the room is not right, but you don't know how you're gonna get there or what's gonna how it's gonna play out. Yeah, I like that. That's a that's a that's a good fix. Uh, I feel like there's so much wrong with that movie. It's, it's definitely like it's your bottom pick of the year. So, I got a pitch for you. Um, now, uh, this is going to be a political satire uh, with a lot of heavy hitters in it. Now, I want it to feel closer to a political satire along the lines of the death of Stalin versus something like the campaign, you know? So okay. I, it's not going to be, like, everyone's going to be playing it straight in this movie. They're not trying to tell jokes. It's all going to be played straight. Um, and this is following one event and one place. Uh, it's it's a democratic debate stage oh which real life or fake life uh it's it's well what do you mean it's not real politicians that they're playing okay uh i have some architects that might sound like some real politicians 
especially if you've been paying attention to the recent Democratic debates. It's going to be a full stage. Um, so the, the movie is going to open um, before the event. It's going to be kind of quiet uh, as some people are setting things up, and you're going to get introduced to our three kind of main relatable people. And that's going to be the people running the kind of the booth behind the scenes that we kind of check in. Occasionally you kind of see the chaos of things unfolding, but you, you kind of like can step away and they can kind of be like, that's a weird, that's a weird thing to say. Can we, can we just put the camera on his face over here? Um, so your three main booth showrunners are going to be Bill Hader, Adam Driver, and Allison Brie. These are going to be your three characters in the booth behind the scene. And I think they can, like they're all, they can all play a very realistic type, like every man or every mm-hmm. woman. Um, it's still every man. It's, it's like, it's a blanket term. It doesn't need gender. Yep. Um, <laughs> that's a discussion for and another day. You gave it. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but I think that they're all really good. You know, you can have like Bill Hader who feels like he's in a little way too over your head. You have Adam Driver that's checked off a little bit because he's so used to it. He knows that it's crazy and mistakes are going to happen and he's just kind of cool with it. And he's kind of cool, calm, and collected the whole time. Um, you also have Allison Bree that kind of jumps in and like thinks like, hey, this this is where our focus should be, taking everything super serious. Um, and like if anything goes wrong, kind of kind of goes a little overboard with certain things. Um, so those are the main people we're introduced with. Uh, it's going to kick off with the song It's All Right, Ma by, by Bob Dylan. Um, that's, that's how the movie kind of opens up. And then we see the title, We Are Working All the Time, which I, I think is – I like titles that are like a mm-hmm. sentence that give you a kind of idea for the tone but don't spoil anything or, or vague enough, but they still work for it. Um, shout out to my roommate Tuli for helping me with that title, We Are Working All the Time. Um so you also gonna you're gonna have your moderators that are kind of organizing this thing and i wanted to kind of have a interesting group um and i i wanted them to be some some pretty hard-hitting actors that you know are just there to ask questions you know so they're definitely way too qualified for the types of answers they're getting um Mm -hmm. so you're gonna have three moderators oscar isaac lakeith stanfield and sandra oh um, which I think all of them can kind of deliver questions well, as well as have some some nice like facial reactions to Buckwild questions or, or uh, answers or people just completely ignoring questions and pivoting. Um, <laughs> so it, it just kind of kind of un- unfold as this wild like not not yeah. over the top. It's just like you kind of see the chaos of everything. Um, Kind of like in, in like certain parts of Birdman, um, where like it's not so over the top, but it's theatrical, if that makes sense. You kind of get mm-hmm. to see all the behind the scenes there. Uh, let me introduce you to our ten candidates. Are you ready? We have ten candidates yes. on stage, and they're all heavy hitters for actors. Uh, we start off with Don Cheadle, who gives. Um, so all of them have like a character type. So I'll just quickly, quickly describe. I d- there's not nothing really ever happens, and that's kind of the point of the movie. There's just yep. it's an event, you know. Yep. Um, so Don Cheadle he gives kind of sincere answers, but always tries to throw in a weird catchphrase or soundbite, you know. Like he always like he 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 sets up his own home runs, and it feels like a little forced at times. But they're yeah. they're always kind of sincere answers. Um, you have Jake Gyllenhaal. 
who always pivots and mentions other candidates, positive and negative, um, whether that hurts his own thing or and like or supports people or like it, it's he always is deflecting whether he should or not. <laughs> um, you have Olivia Coleman, who's really not Shit. ready at all, but on a few topics, really ready and noticeably excited. Like, it's like, like, let's say, for example, like transportation is the thing that they really have locked down. And so like all the other ones, they, they just kind of give super vague answers, but they get like all giddy and like super focused in <laughs> when they finally get questions that are specifically related to theirs and then get disappointed mm-hmm. when it, the topic moves. Um, you have uh, uh, Viola Davis. Um, again, so not everyone that is Shit. specifically comedy, you have a, a nice balance, much like they did in, in um, Death of Stalin, where you have all like comedy actors and serious actors all playing in this movie. So Viola Davis, who gives these super, super big speeches that all sound fantastic, but has no specifics and never really answers the questions. But there are these super big, like, fantastic speeches that are just like, wow, I don't remember what the question was and i don't think you answered but that was very good <laughs> um you have uh army hammer who is uh super charming but very vague <laughs> and cannot take any sort of criticism and like if anyone tries to get him to hone in on specific policies just just kind of finds a way out of it and not all of them work um, you have Annette Benning, who it like feels like she's really qualified, but gets overshadowed by everyone else there. Um, kind of like Annette Benning in real life, <laughs> where she's really good but never gets a chance to shine. Um, you have Paul Dano, who Ooh. is very smart but super shy and really quiet, and like. You know, like, you get the, like, microphone, like, feedback and stuff like that. Oh, my God. But, yes. like, if, if he could, like, hone in on what he's trying to say, you'd be like, wow, that, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> you have Jonathan Price, uh, who is an older established candidate that is very forgetful and really bad at, like, answering any of the questions. <laughs> but it feels like he should know what he's doing because he has, like, the most <laughs> qualifications. Um, we're almost done. We only got two people left. You have uh, Michael Stuhlbarg, who is your Ooh. status quo centrist, really trying to think like compromise everybody. We're gonna work across the aisle, not no bold ideas. And other people kind of ram on him for that, both like ones that think mm-hmm. it's too extreme or not extreme enough. Um, so he's just kind of your your every everyday boring individual. Let's <laughs> get Michael Stuhlbarg up there. Uh, and lastly, you have John Goodman, uh, who plays a loud and angry, aggressive candidate that is loud and angry about entirely the wrong things. Um, <laughs> so, like, it will go up there and, like, they'll give a very fiery, like, attack on a thing that doesn't matter or, like, things that you don't need to be polarized about. Um, so it's kind of like mis- misfires, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So that's kind of what I... goes. And, and it closes at the end as, like, everyone kind of wraps out and, like, everyone moves to um, the the spin 
places where they go and talk to all of the news anchors and you see like all the candidates leave for that and then you're just kind of left with the booth operators that are just sitting there with an empty stage like exhausted uh and it it ends with mother country by john stewart leads us into the credits uh the same song that was featured in apollo 11 Um, oh great song yes um um fuck that's a really good song yeah so it's called we are working all the time I, I'm not completely sold on who's making it. I think the easy answer is Armando Iniucci, who did oh. Death of Stalin and The oh. Thick of It and, and In the Loop, all that stuff. But uh, I think the Documentary Now team could could handle it. So Seth Meyers, um, John Mulaney, Fred Armisen, Bill Hader, all working together to do it. And then I think Bill Hader could direct it as well, I think would be really interesting. Uh, he's one that I really want to see like feature length do, do feature. something yeah. more serious and more highbrow because um, he is more than capable uh it, it, there's a specific episode of barry that i need you to watch because it's one of the greatest episodes of tv ever uh yeah. so i'm i'm excited to that and that's i think yeah that's that's my pitch it's a lot i'm sorry <laughs> two notes i just have two notes on it okay i really want there to be a scene where paul dano is like saying something important like a really good idea on something Right, but he's too quiet, and like the moderator's like, uh, "Can you sp- please speak up, sir?" And like somebody else just butts in and completely steals the entire idea and like attention mm-hmm. from the idea. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's Army uh, Hammer's yes. gonna do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think I think it's a really interesting like array I of also, people. I wish Robert Red- Redford was on the stage. That would be good. Just. Given his history with The Candidate, yeah. which is a great movie if you haven't seen mm-hmm. it, I would love to see him up there. There were a lot of people I was kind of, you know, towing around on who could be there, could not be. And that that's kind of mm-hmm. the list that I settled on. I, I think it's a good I also was thinking maybe Jeffrey Wright could take over the Michael Stuhlbarg role. Um, th- there's a lot of different people you can cast into it. This is kind of yeah. where I landed um, for the architects that I think would do a really good job. And I wanted it mm-hmm. to have it be like some bigger names, some, some a little bit smaller names, you know, not like Annette Benning doesn't get put into our, our pitches enough, but people like Jake Gyllenhaal and Army Hammer probably show up a lot. Yeah. So that's awesome. Yeah. I really like that. I would actually 100% see that. Right. Cause that sounds awesome. Like I loved the death of Stalin. And I think putting that type of movie in a single night event yeah. on a debate stage would be just fucking hilarious. We we bid you a farewell. I mean, we gotta. <laughs> there's an actual outro thing we do. We 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 gotta wrap up the show. I, I know. I wanted to. I wanted to lead that into the actual bit, though. Yeah, but now it's like and now what? I'm confronting you, and now it's got a weird energy to it, David. Ethan, I'm gonna stop you right there. I bid you farewell. The farewell? What are you, Lulu Wang? Um, <laughs> uh, huge shout out and enormous thank you to our friend Guy from How to Be a Great GM. Um, yes, can, thank you so much. You can find access to all of the things that they do, and they do a lot, at greatgamemaster.com. Um, you, whether you're looking for videos on world building, that would be on, on their YouTube channel or you want actually like a live Q&A stream that's on, on Twitch and YouTube or you want to take a look into books. They got so much stuff to offer. All of it's going to be at 
greatgamemaster.com. Check that out. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all at FeatureCast. That's FTR underscore cast. Mm-hmm. And you can also find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash FeatureCast without the underscore. Oh, wow. Changing up there. Ooh, curveball. <laughs> uh, we got some awesome things on, on our Patreon that you can find, uh, whether that's extra extra content for each episode, some extra like first impressions that we didn't quite get the chance to, to do. Um, Which? A whole bunch of stuff. I really yeah. got to use the bathroom, David. Uh, I will be oh. right back. Can you, okay. you want to wrap us out? Yeah. You know, thank you so much for listening. Again, Guy. Thank you so much for coming on the episode and talking with Ethan about world building, not building a world. Who knew? There's a difference there. Um, check us out on Twitter. That's really where we're the most active, mainly me. Uh, so if you want to send over a movie recommendation or an idea for the podcast, do that there. Or you can send us an email at futurecastquestions at gmail.com. Um... Yeah, and then you can also support us on Patreon, like Ethan said. We got some really fun stuff behind the paywall. And after this episode, we're going to be doing a little bit of a deeper dive into some of the extra first impressions that we had for this month. Uh, Ethan's got a shit ton. And I have five. This is like the first time Ethan's ever beat me in watching more stuff in a month. Ever. Uh, So yeah, thank you so much for listening.